Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. Well, this is the podcast from Multi-Faith Matters. I am the host, John Moorhead, and I'm privileged today to have as my guest, James Keenan, he is Vice Provost for Global Engagement and Canisius Professor, Director of the Jesuit Institute of Boston College. He is the author of several books, including one related to our conversation today, Meeting, or excuse me, Jesus and Virtue Ethics, Building Bridges Between New Testament Studies and Moral Theology, which he co-authored with Daniel Harrington. For those of you watching on YouTube rather than just listening to the audio, that's the book cover if you look in the program notes. You can find a link to that as well as a link to uh, Dr. Keenan's uh, information. Dr. Keenan, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. Thanks for coming on. Um, this is an area that's probably going to be new for my audience. Uh, just so that, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, to connect dots, people may be wondering why is a program devoted to multi faith engagement dealing with? Uh, virtue ethics. And that is because I'm trying to help us uh, expand our repertoire in which the lenses in which we understand and relate to religious others. And I think there's great promise in Christian ethics in doing so. And that's why you and I are having this conversation today. As we begin, can you share some of your background in your research and work in moral theology? So um, one of the areas that I've worked on is um, on virtue ethics. And I work in virtue ethics because I'm interested in what is it that a uh, Christian needs in order to grow as a disciple of Christ. Um, this is, I've written virtues, a book called Virtues for Ordinary Christians, for instance, 10 years before the one that you put up. I did one on Paul and virtue ethics. So I, I've done a variety of books all on virtue ethics. And my interest is that, as a matter of fact, if you open up the scriptures and you want to find out what it is that God asked of us, it's basically to be virtuous people. And whether it's to be obedient to his word, uh, whether it's to be uh, responsive to others, whether it's to be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful, um, all of these are virtuous descriptions. So you want to know, if you want to be able to talk about what is it that God asked of me, what is it that discipleship in following Jesus is about? I'd say that the answer is the language of virtue and that that language of virtue is very helpful for Christians communicating to one another. That's not honest, we can say. That, that honesty means it's not simply what you said or, or didn't say, but as a matter of fact, that it comes from within you. So it's, we're, we're trying to say something about the way we proceed that again, as the scriptures tell us, as um, that that things come from within us, and and we need to say what is it that we have within us? What ways are our spirit, is our soul already formed in order to hear and follow the word of God? So the language of the scriptures, I would say, when it comes to what are the moral expectations that the community can have of me or that I think that Christ is asking of me, 
I would say that the language of virtue is what helps us. Are you just? Are you merciful? Are you faithful? Are you obediential? Are you gracious? Are you kind? These are all virtue descriptions. So all we're doing is saying, why don't we talk about the virtues so that we can get a sense of what it means to be a Christian today? So it works, though, also, if you want to talk to people outside of the Christian community, if you want, there are, there are books in my field uh, that have been done about um, how Christians may want to talk to Confucians and how their language is also in the key of virtue. There's a book I can think of uh, comparing Thomas Aquinas and Mencius, for instance. But there's a lot of work. It could, you could say, what do we have in common with the Jews? Well, you know, you can talk about hesed in the Bible, uh, this sense of being faithful to the Lord, to the covenant. Um, these are all about virtuous dispositions. Uh, it's interesting, your, your, the way the book is titled Jesus and Virtue Ethics. And then the subtitle, Building Bridges Between New Testament Studies and Moral Theology. Is, is that not a connection that we tend to make frequently? Yeah, I would say that the evangelical community does it much more easily and seamlessly than the uh, Roman Catholics do. Uh, so I taught this course with a major scripture scholar named Dan Harrington, who's who who had written, he's since has died. But um, this was a course that we did together here in Boston, that we did it for the entire Boston theological um community. This is nine schools, nine divinity schools, all centered here in Boston. We had 100 graduate students every time that we taught it. And it was basically because we were trying to say, Dan would give a, a sense of what do these scriptural texts mean when you look at them, when you really want to study what does the text originally mean. And then I would talk about what could we talk, how could we use the language of virtue in order to help the text be something we could talk about. So... Okay. Can you talk about the, the current state? Oh, pardon me. If I could add, it, the, yes. so the Jesus in it is really, we were talking about the synoptic gospels. Later, later we did this course called Paul and Virtue Ethics. So it was all the Pauline letters. And then after that, we did a course on John and Virtue Ethics. And that was all the Johannine text. So we were looking at different New Testament texts to say what 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 do we what are the texts that especially when we're looking to understand better more concretely the moral life that arise and and uh, how how can virtue help us to understand better what's being concretely contemporaneously asked of us? Can you talk a little about what the state is of uh, virtue ethics and moral theology in connection with New Testament ethics? Is this still a is it a vibrant area of study or Oh yeah, I mean, well, I mean, yeah, I, it's just hard to get away from it. Um, it's it. So, um, there's this, uh, you know, there's uh, Alistair McIntyre does a book called After Virtue. He, he, a philosopher, he does this work, and he says, you know, all of ethics has been about norms for acting, but as a matter of fact before the Enlightenment, before the 18th century, um, we were talking always in the key of virtue. And he said, philosophers need to get back to the virtues. So it's called after virtue because he's trying to describe that we la now live in a time after virtue, 
but we should pursue, we should go after virtue. So it's a play on words, the title of it. This is a book that had enormous impact. It came out about 40 years ago, enormous impact on philosophers, but it also had impact on theologians who, who saw this as an invitation to rethink ethics. Instead of saying what you should or shouldn't do, we should be thinking about what type of practices should you develop so that you're more honest, not simply, we, not simply to say, don't tell a lie, but be honest. Don't tell a lie is an act. Be honest is about developing within you a way that in all that you do, the way you talk to God, the way you talk to your family, the way you talk to others, the way you talk in your workplace, that that you need to have a disposition that's been developed and and it should be honest. So we, I would say that there's a sea change, that if you look from 1980 on, you'll see that most of ethics is now written in the key of virtue, whereas before it was mostly written in the key of particular actions or rules for particular actions. Now it's more about uh, trying to set agenda for developing virtues in the community and within the person. That's an interesting thing too, because we think that we could be talking about communities of faith that need to grow in a particular virtue. So it's not just about a person, it's also about communities of faith. Are they, have they, are they reconciling? Are they, are they hospitable? Are they faithful? These words uh, are, are words that invite us to look at the moral dispositions of us, either as a person or as a community of faith. What, what kind of method should somebody who wants to branch out in this area to take their New Testament studies and connect it to uh, a study and development and nurturing of virtue ethics in their own life? What kinds of methods should they use? Well, uh, uh, there was a, um, a Jesuit uh, priest in my field from Hong Kong named Lucas Chan, who who did two books on this. He he first he originally did his studies of how do we how do should we read the Beatitudes, and then after he did that, he wanted to do how should we read the Ten Commandments. So he took he took the eight macarisms of the Beatitudes and the Ten Commandments. And he decided, he said that if you really want to do a good work in New Testament ethics, in scriptural ethics, and also in contemporary ethics, you should do two things. One, you should make clear that you understand what the text means. You need biblical theology in order to understand what does the poor in spirit mean? What really does Matthew mean by mourn? What, what is this purity of heart? Uh, in the Beatitudes. Uh, what is this fasting about? So he did a he did a, a, a read of what do scripture scholars say that these different macarisms, these you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed are the meek, or blessed are uh, those who hunger and fast. Um, he, he said, first we need to know what does that text mean. But secondly, we have to ask, well, what does virtue ethics help us to understand? What type of disposition should we cultivate? How should we cultivate it? Who's an exemplar from the scriptures that could serve as a helpful way of understanding what meekness means or what, um, uh, you know, what merciful means? So there's this twofold agenda that we say that we're looking for first, what does the text mean? And secondly, 
how can virtue help us to express uh, what lessons we should take from this text for living ordinary life today? Well, Jesus was living under a context very different than our Second Temple Judaism and Roman domination, and yet he can still serve as as an example for us today in our Western post-Christendom context. What suggestions would you have to to look to Jesus as an example in this area? Well, one of the things is I do a lot of international work. So one of the, you know, like immediately when you ask that question, I'm thinking of the people in China and how they're dealing with their government or I'm thinking of the people in Brazil, how they're thinking with their government. In, in all these different instances, we can see that uh, your question applies universally. It's not just mm-hmm. uh, that. But I mean, I, th- I think that that's what the, it's a twofold work. We, we want to hear what does the scripture scholar have to say and what does the ethicist have to say? They each have a particular role, but they do well when they listen to one another as well. You know, I I would say that one of the things that virtue helps us to do is to understand that that following the Lord is a lifetime agenda. It's not about having working out the pathway. It's about working out the capability to live out the pathway. So it so virtue is telling us be prepared, get ready, uh, anticipate what the scriptures repeatedly tell us. You know, when you're going into battle, you know, do an assessment. So we're actually being called, I think, uh, to work out, if you will, what is my community of faith? So say you take a community of faith that's, that is um, resisting some, some tensions but becomes overly suspicious. How does it prudentially decide that it's so overly suspicious that it l- lacks any hospitality? How does it how does it scrutinize on a question like that? Again, it's through virtue words that we find help. We find that Jesus is always trying to keep us alert to what our real context is. So and virtue, I think, helps us to say, well, are we are we overdoing it in this sense? Are we are we naive? You know, there are some people who are very naive about the circumstances they are, other people who are overly reactive. You know, so virtue keeps reminding us that we have to try to figure out what is the appropriate response. So, and it's and 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 therefore the response will change as this as the situation as the context changes. If there were greater respect and hospitality for Christianity, there would be a different approach. That's what virtue is about: paying attention to the signs of the times, but also to the message that we're called to live. You've mentioned uh, a little bit on the Sermon on the Mount. It's uh, a passage in Scripture that the Mennonite tradition has spent a lot of time interacting with and living their ethic out of. Uh, But beyond the Mennonite emphasis, what lessons would you say that the Sermon on the Mount has for us in terms of virtue ethics? Well, um, I... I, I, In... um, in the in in the Vatican, okay. So now I can talk about a very familiar site for me, the Vatican. Um, you go into the uh, the Sistine Chapel, and one wall is all about the Law of Moses, and the other is all about the Law of Christ. And there's this wonderful painting of Moses getting the Ten Commandments, and in front of that is Jesus 
doing the Sermon on the Mount, you know? And one is about the old law and the other is about the perfect law. And that, that's what these two are playing off of uh, there. And, and I would say that, that um, th this, this Sermon on the Mount is about what the human can become. It, it's, it's, it's the, the, when you're looking at the Ten Commandments, you're looking at a way of making sure that we don't make things much worse. Um, you get a sense of let's get some order here. Uh, let's move. Uh, this is the best we can ask of people that they don't kill, they don't steal, that they don't lie. And, and, and later on, we will develop that, the, that we can't simply prohibit. We also have to prescribe actions that go that are life-giving and promoting life, actions that are promoting respect, uh, actions that are promoting honesty. But I think that the Sermon on the Mount is really about human capability, about becoming more of a disciple of Jesus. I think that the Sermon on the Mount is inviting us to a, a, what I would call a ladder of ascent, um, that as, for instance, in the Sermon in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, this Lucas Chan that I mentioned, he and so many exegetes say the poor in spirit are really about the poorest of the poor. They're so alienated that not only are they economically poor, they have no fellow who uh, helps them in any way. They're completely alienated and isolated. And he says that the Beatitudes are about turning your gaze on those people. And then he says the second Beatitude, blessed are they who mourn, is not mourning your condition, but rather are you mourning the condition of the poor in spirit? So the second beatitude is, are you paying attention to these people in your community of faith who are so alienated? So first, Jesus raises up the poor in spirit, but second, he asks, what's your response to them? And then he, the third, he says, blessed are the meek. And here he's basically saying that if you want to respond to the poor in spirit, you need to be meek. You need to be able to meet them on their level rather than being condescending. You need to see that they are your siblings in the Lord. So there's a, a certain way that the eight steps of the Beatitudes are taking us to a greater and greater capacity to respond to our neighbor who is poor in spirit and to keep our eyes more on that poor in spirit person than ourselves. So the virtues that we see here are virtues about being mindful of my neighbor in need, much more so than some sort of self-help way that I'm going to make myself a better person. And you say, well, you want to make yourself a better person. I'm glad to hear that. But for what end? And, you know, I think the Beatitudes are saying for the poor in spirit. And they're, and, and they're calling us to be thinking of the other. Uh, in a way that that we're constantly called to recognize Christ in the other. So, so I think it's always ask, it's asking much more of us, uh, more of us, and and um, and therefore it's 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 calling us to something that we have not anticipated yet. Mm -hmm. this is, so it's not just. I think there's this tendency, given our cultural context, to say it's all about me and self improvement, but yeah. but it's in relation to the other. It's 
it's yeah. doing it's practicing these virtues on behalf of the other is that correct yeah i mean that's what i think it's all about you know like you know like the disciples are constantly trying to figure out how do they get rid of the people of god who's around jesus and jesus is saying no take care of them you know let the children come to me uh feed them you know uh no help them here um and i think that these words are for us to hear uh, I work in the context I interact with the work that I do with other religious traditions, helping Christians do that uh, with social psychology. And social psychologists right now are really emphasizing looking at the virtue of humility. Now, you mentioned that oh, these I love humility. <laughs> yeah, you, you mentioned that these virtues are are to, to some extent contextual, right? It's going to depend yeah. upon what context you're in. In America and the West, I think many times, including the church, we have a humility problem. Um, what, what would you have to say in light of passages like Philippians 2, uh, yeah. where Paul encourages the Philippians to embrace the kind of humility that Christ uh, exemplified? What lessons in virtue would we would we benefit from reflecting on? So the first thing is I say that I use humility to say that it's uh, humility is knowing my place in God's world. Uh, so I have a way of describing different virtues in different ways, but humility, I say, means knowing my place in God's world. I think of when Mary utters the Magnificat, the Lord has done marvels for me, and holy is his name. He has raised up the lowly. Uh, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Uh, th this is this is a song of the church. This is We know that this is an early song of the church that they they sang the Magnificat. Now, it's the Magnificat, the Lord has done great things, but it's a prayer about holiness. And it's a, in particular about humble holiness, that Mary understands her place and the church is trying to understand its place in God's world. So I've always thought of humility as, as really knowing not what I'm entitled to, but my place. You know, where has God, you know, discerned what has God asked of me? But the second thing that I love is that we use a phrase that, as a matter of fact, I think it came, I think it came from James Gustafson, and and now in Catholic circles it's moving around, and he calls it the grace of self-doubt, the grace of self-doubt. I'm an I'm a professor at a university. I pray that my brothers and sisters who are faculty members learn the grace of self-doubt. I think that the best scholars I know have the grace of self-doubt. When I work with doctoral students, if they don't have the grace of self-doubt, I'm in trouble, they're in trouble. I think the grace of self-doubt is, is a wonderful way of us actually uh, realizing that we don't understand everything, but we are called to understand as best we can. And, and, and you can't do that if you don't have some self-doubt, if you don't, if you, if you're so self-assured um, that you don't have any self-critical skills, you're not able to do this. And I think that that's a tangible notion of humility. A friend of mine calls it epistemic humility. It's, it's about, it's not just about who I am, but how I think and how I reason. And we use it, give, give the benefit of the doubt to someone. Well, that's also giving the benefit of the doubt to someone is actually, why do you doubt some of your assessment on that person? So the grace of self-doubt plays itself out a bit. And right now, where we live in a country where everyone thinks they know what the other person is thinking. The grace of self-doubt should just flow over because there's so much 
barren land that needs some watering uh, with the grace of self-doubt. So uh, I think humility, Augustine said, you know, the first virtue is humility. The second virtue is humility. The third virtue is humility. You know, I think he had it right that before you enter into any of the virtues, you need humility. You need to know your place in God's world. You need to take yourself out of your world into God's world. And I think that humility is the virtue that helps us to be in God's world. And you, related to that, can you talk to the place of, of love in connection with these virtues? Yeah, I think that then, and then you can love better and more. I mean, one of the things that I love is, again, in the Beatitudes, that virtue of meekness, I think, comes close to humility. That's why it's there so early, in because it's eight stages. That's the third stage. The second one is, blessed are those who mourn. And that basically, Lucas Chan says that blessed are those who mourn is basically an invitation to recognize those in the community who are already empathetic to the people who are responding to the poor in spirit. So he's saying, don't learn to mourn, <laughs> learn to be empathetic. Uh, so why, you can only learn to be empathetic if you pay attention to those who are mourning. So the invitation to meekness is to recognize those who are meek, those who are already humble. I think that the most generous people are basically humble. I think the real generous people are people who are humble. So this notion of the ascent, the, the, the people who are most responsive to people in need recognize not themselves but the person in need and and they're in god's world rather than in their world so i think that in order to be able to love your neighbor you have to be in god's world you have to be paying attention to how god sees things in which these his children god's children are our brothers and sisters and if we see them as simply people we should help out rather than our siblings, then we're missing the entire biblical perspective of what God sees. So, so I do think humility is the beginning of love. Without humility, it's very hard to love right. Uh, we mentioned at the beginning, or I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that I was trying to connect dots for Christians between the idea of uh, virtue ethic and tapping into that and exercising that as we relate to people in other religious traditions. Obviously, we need to exercise love within the church, and we don't have a very good history of doing that, particularly across uh, different branches and, and denominations and so on. But what would you have to say about it? it? It seems to me that as I look at the way Christians in a variety of traditions tend to relate to religious others, um, it's usually out of fear, fear for uh, them going to hell. Uh, and, and I recognize that love is in the mix. But so there's the soteriological angle, and then there's fear of the other in terms of apologetics. So we try and refute and, and tear down a worldview. If we want to add additional tools and perspectives to our toolkit, how might virtue ethics, tapping into that as a Christian, provide us with additional considerations for how we relate to others in a pluralistic world? Hmm. I do think that this grace of self-doubt helps. <clears throat> I think that I don't mean that. I guess I mean in trying to discern what God wants of me in light of the scriptures. I think that um, many people have set ways in answering that. I, I, I always see Jesus in the scriptures as asking us to come closer, 
um, there were there was a there are sometimes movies made of Jesus that I find really brilliant. They basically show Jesus leading the way and that disciples are having a hard time catching up with him. Um, I think that if you if you can't capture that insight, um, that you want to keep Jesus in focus, then you have to pay more attention to whether or not you're really um, able to see him. Um, and, and that means really paying attention to more capability of following the Lord. So there's a certain sense that strikes me that many of us are stuck in our ways when what Jesus is always asking of us is to go further, to go the further mile, to go further down the pathway. There was an old uh, medieval saying, to stand on the way of the Lord is to move backwards. To stand on the way of the Lord is to move backwards. If you just stand in the way of the Lord, the Lord is going for, further forward and you're receding. Um, and and it, it strikes me that um, this notion of discipleship, of following the Lord, is a way that helps us to say, I'm, I'm meeting more and more people from different communities of faith. Um, how, how am I realizing a way to encounter them um, that's really helpful and what God wants of me rather than what I've been using as my MO for all this time. I always think that, um, I always think that more is always asked of the Christian. Um, so. Yeah, it, it's. If I, if, I don't, if I don't hear a Christian saying that God is asking more of them, then I, I don't know who they're listening to. <laughs> that, that's true. It, it just seems to me the more I reflect on on this, that uh, we do have uh, these aspects in our tradition of love of neighbor, even love of enemy. Even if you consider a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist an enemy, there's love of enemy in addition to love of yeah. neighbor. And we have these ancient Christian practices of hospitality and neighborliness and it seems to me that uh, uh, particularly with the church now facing a credibility problem in many quarters, that uh, we just need to be thinking more uh, in terms of virtue ethics in addition to apologetics and, and the proclamation of our, our message. Yeah. And and I do think, you know, if you go if you go and see a mosque or you see a synagogue or you see a Hindu temple you, you're you're seeing people who are acknowledging um, their God. Um, does this not say something to us? Uh, is this not good news? Um, if they hold up a dollar and say this is their God, is 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 that the same as somebody a Muslim pointing to a mosque or a Jew pointing to the synagogue or a Hindu pointing to a temple? If if their God is the dollar, that's one thing. But if their God is a is a is a place where they gather and worship to try to surrender to the call that their God has, does this not have meaning to us? Is this not something that that we can understand that is very different from somebody who says, I believe in the almighty dollar? Um, it just strikes me that we live in a 
structure where I would think that that paying attention to those who are religious in different religious communities of not not Christian communities or in different denominations of Christianity, that I don't think we get corrupted by understanding what they're doing. I think as a matter of fact, we may see that there's some similarities going on that are worth trying to figure out. How do they deal with hospitality? You know, some people think of hospitality, for instance, that I take care of you in my house. Other people think of hospitality means that I invite you into leading in my house. These are two very different ways. Am I just simply going to buy the entire agenda of my house? Or is it somehow I'm involved in articulating the agenda of my house? Can't we learn about, or can't we learn about the humility of a Jew or a Muslim that could help a Christian to learn what humility is? One of the great things about virtue is that we do do a lot of comparative work. We're not interested in saying this is therefore Christian, Christian humility. We say this is Jewish humility. This is Islamic humility. This is Hindu humility. But it allows us to say, what is this way of being, this way of acting, this disposition that we have to cultivate that we're interested in, that they seem to be interested in too? And, 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 and what does that mean? So Confucianism talks about piety all the time. Well, does that have anything to say to us when we see, when we see devout um, Chinese people who are able to be pious in terms of their religious practices and in terms of their living their lives. Is that, is that not something positive on the horizon, somewhat different from somebody who believes that the only reason to live is to make money? These, it just strikes me that the virtues enable us to look at another community, not to say that's our virtue, but that's their virtue. And their virtue is can be like us, and there are things that we can learn. That's why we we use this language comparative. It's comparative. It's not the same. But how could how do we want to compare? Um, how do we want to compare courage? For instance, one scholar wrote a book on courage in different religious traditions. What does courage look like um, for Christians as opposed to what does courage look like for Muslims, for instance? So. Yeah, I think that I think your question is really rather key to say to us that that it does not require us to say what they're who they are worshiping is the right God or anything like that. But it does allow us to have a little bit of modesty to recognize that they may actually be doing something that we could learn about what constitutes charity or what constitutes fidelity or what constitutes obedience that really is helpful for us. After all, you know, we are created by the same God. So. Well, Dr. Keenan, is there any other uh, key takeaways that we should uh, be aware of that you would like to express for whether from this book or other aspects of your work? One thing I'm working on right now, I'm working on this notion of vulnerability. Hmm. A lot of notions on vulnerability, but I, I don't think of vulnerability as a weakness. I think of it as a capacity. I think hmm. of um, vulnerability, meaning my capacity to recognize the other. Um, the vulnerability is the vulnerability of the Good Samaritan who's able to see the wounded man on the road. V 
Vulnerability is the vulnerability of the father, the prodigal son, who's able to see his son on the horizon, who also is able to see his other son who's resentful that he knows is going to flare up over the welcome he gives to the younger son. So I, I think of vulnerability as this enormous um, capacity to be responsive in recognizing the other. Um, I think that I there's a lot of a lot of people in my field are writing about that. A lot of younger people too. A lot of doctoral students really love the concept of vulnerability. I'm finding it very helpful, and I think it can be dressed in a lot of virtues that are really necessary. I do think that I hope that the Christian communities think more about how vulnerable they are to the other. Um, I think that thinking about vulnerability not as weakness but as capacity allows us to see, am I really vulnerable to the Lord? Um, and uh, I think that's a good way to end this interview. Yeah, I, I really like that idea. I mean, even in connection with some other aspects, you mentioned hospitality. You know, it's one thing for us to extend hospitality and have the power in that dynamic. It's another thing to respond to the other's invitation in their sacred space and to be vulnerable in that context. So I think there's a lot of great application there. So that's fantastic. Great. Great. Thank you. Well, uh, again, I want to thank you for coming on the program. Uh, my guest today has been Dr. James Keenan, and uh, he, again, is co-author of Jesus and Virtue Ethics. Look in the program notes for a link to that and some other resources. And uh, I want to thank my guest, and thanks to everybody for watching and listening to the Multi-Faith Matters podcast. Until the next episode.